Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hello, how are you? I hope you've had a great week. I've had a really lovely one spending most of my time at home with the family. The weather's pretty cold here. It's the middle of winter, so we're hunkered down in front of open fires, just chilling. Kind of nice sometimes. Now, I've managed to track down a guy called Patrick Lloyd from the UK's first multiracial band, The Equals. The search took me from Australia to Barbados and eventually to London, where I found him, as you'll hear in just a minute. Also today, Kiwi superstar Sharon O'Neill, who's best known for this one. And later, we're going to hear from the author of this earworm. I don't like spiders and snakes And that ain't what it takes to love me Like I want to be loved by you I wonder if you can recall his name. You'll find out more about him soon. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Okay, they're called The Equals and they've been around since the 60s. You'll probably remember their sound from this song that took them all the way to number one. Lloyd, terrific to meet you. And you, thank you for having me, Sandy. I've been a long-time fan of The Equals. Have you been with them from the start? Yes, right from the beginning. Tell us about how you got going. Uh, basically, the the drummer, John Hall, who lives in Australia, was uh, basically the original founder member. And then uh, Eddie Grant joined the band, then Durban Lincoln Gordon, and uh, Eddie and I went to school together. Patrick, you've been playing with them. How many years would that be now? That would be about nearly 57 years. You've gone from success to success over that time, haven't you? Yes, we've had uh, ups and downs and kept going. And uh, we, we did stop for a little while, you know, when we had the bad car accident and he was off the road. Tell but, us about uh, that. That was in Germany in the 71, I think it was. And uh, we was in a serious car accident. Myself and Eddie were, were injured, but Eddie was injured pretty bad. He never left the band. He carried on at home. He had to come off the road. That was while you were on tour in Germany? Uh, yes. Well, we was uh, going to do a television show in Bremen when the car accident happened on the motorway. So he carried on. That was 1971. Before that, you'd had a couple of massive hits, hadn't you? Yes. In Europe, I think we had uh, 14 top 20 records. Around, mm. around the world, it was mostly uh, Baby Come Back, People Bobby Joe. other bands started doing our songs. The Clash done the Police on My Back, UB40 did Baby Come Back. It's great. 
You were noted as one of the UK's first interracial bands, of course, with the addition of Eddie. So you were very different when you first started out in the mid-60s, weren't you? Yes, we were, yeah. Played blues, bit of reggae. But it wasn't reggae then, it was either blue beat or ska, as you wanted to call it. And that first hit was indeed Baby Comeback, wasn't it? Yes, but uh, Baby Comeback was the B song. Hold Me Closer was the A song. Hold me closer This jockey in Germany sort of reversed it and kept playing Baby Come Back. And in 1967, it went to number one basically everywhere in Europe. And then in 68, it went to England. Usually it's the other way around. It was a great single. Both A and B side were fantastic. So how did you get Eddie Grant to join the group in the first place? It was John Hall, the drummer, who basically was forming the band. The three of us went to school. Did Eddie hold any reservations at the time, given all the UK bands were white? No, not at all. It was, uh, I think it was prejudice in England in that time, but no, we just played together and people come along and like the music and that was it. That first single, Baby Come Back, off the back, well, literally off the back of Hold Me Closer, what do you think it was about that that caught everyone's imagination? If I knew that, we could have had a load more numbers, you know, if anybody knows. and maybe uh, the image as well, you know, at the time. And seeing a multiracial band, the one thing that the Eagles did, we had a hit album in 1967 in England, a top 10 album before we had a hit single, which was quite phenomenal. I think before any other band had a hit album. It was in reverse order, right? Yeah, it was. But I think <laughs> that was a lot to do with the, the pirate radio station started playing it and then... People picked up on it. It was also very new for Europe at that particular time, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. And the image was uh, different as well. We had a prolific songwriter like Eddie Brock, you know. Eddie was writing all those terrific hits? There was a mixture of it, but most of the hits were written by Eddie. He was the main writer of the band. He had this time, like, after having the car accident on the road, of course he was sitting indoors writing songs. The new song, Nobody's Got Time, was written by Eddie, and we was going to a different level. The songs we was writing, all these records were sort of made in the 70s, but they was too far advanced. Ahead of their time, you think? Yeah, so the two. But, and now this is why I chose to do some of these songs from the albums that we did. Someone just found one of these songs called Funky Like a Train and started playing it. And before you knew it, it went into the charts again. If you speak to a, a lot of youngsters who say the equals, they go, oh, you mean Funky Like a Train? They've never ah. heard of paper. Like, you haven't so, heard of Funky Like a Train, have you? I haven't. <laughs> 
This new single was actually an old song that you've just decided to put out X amount of years later. Uh, yeah, I decided to work uh, because uh, we had a few younger members in the band. Sounds had changed and uh, I thought this and also in our new album that we're in the studios making, there's quite a few songs I've taken from these two albums that were never really released. And I thought that was all great songs which Eddie wrote and they have uh, something to say. And what they're saying is up to date. What are they saying, Patrick? Well, basically telling the truth it was about young people on drugs, everybody dropping out of school. And this was written in the late 70s. So, you know, that was ahead of their time. Not much in the world has changed, really, has it? Certainly not for no. the better. Yeah, it was starting then, you know, and I think it's gotten worse to be true. Yeah. Nobody. quietened down once that disco era came to be. What were you doing during that time? Still playing all over Europe. He was always getting work. It's great. Of all of those top 20 hits, which one did you like best? I think it has to be another When You Think This Song Was Written, and it's called Black Skin Blue Eye Boys. And why do you like that? Because when it was written, it's quite genius. If you listen to the words of the song, you realise it's a song of today with all black power, things going on. It's a statement. You know, we ain't going to fight no war also. It's all in there. We was out on the road and he was still writing the songs, doing the album, producing the albums. And it just come up. He even surprised himself. He he will tell you, he never wanted to be a singer. He never wanted to leave the band. It, it just that band be coming out with his first song that was completely different, living on the front line. And it just went into the charts and that was it. And then he had Electric Avenue that went to number one in America and England. Can't get food for the kids. 
Electric Avenue And then we'll take it higher Electric Avenue And then we'll take it higher hold him down so no, there was no. there was more in him as a songwriter than as a performer with the band yes all these songs they would have all been the equal songs they would have been the songs where the equals would have played if eddie still remained in the band but through illness and not being able to travel it took him nearly two years to recover from the accident uh, i guess there was no resentment on mm-hmm. the part of the band as a result of that no and then like you say you have Outside influences of record companies and Eddie and myself, we wanted our own publishing company and uh, we fought for that. In the end, it all worked out fine. That's great. Everyone's having a successful career and the world's getting some awesome music from all of you. We can carry on. There's still uh, quite a few songs that we like to do, you know. And we have a great new singer in the band that used to be with Pete Wade. You know, they've all been in famous bands. Great. Patrick, will you talk to me again when the album comes out? I definitely will. In the meantime, we'll let everybody know that it's coming, that the new single is out now and that the Equals are alive and well and doing great business. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Patrick. I'll look forward to the next time we chat. Thanks, Andy. Thanks very much. If you're a fan of A Breath of Fresh Air, you might also like to listen to it at the time of your choosing on the podcast version. Go wherever you get your podcasts from, or you can access it through my website, abreathoffreshair.com.au. Coming up, Mr. Spiders and Snakes himself, Jim Stafford. This is A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Terrific is still here. Thanks so much for hanging in. Can you guess what time it is? Call me one hit wonder. Curse me to the day I die. One hit wonder. I hit the blunt and just wonder. Yep, it's our one hit wonder segment where I dig up artists you probably haven't thought about for years. Like Jim Stafford, who was best known for his humorous country novelty songs of the mid-70s. The multi-instrumentalist also enjoyed a lengthy career as a TV personality and live entertainer. Jim Stafford, it's terrific to meet you. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm still doing shows, but I'm also kind of taking it easy. Well, that's not a bad thing, is it? You've certainly put in the miles over the years. You deserve it. Oh, my goodness, Yes. Yeah, I sure did. Jim, I was really interested to read about you that you started playing in high school bands as a teenager with a very good friend of this show, Kent Lavoy, who later became known as Lobo. That's correct. Yeah. Me and you and point uh ken lavoy and graham parsons and myself were in a group called the legends right but i believe that you really didn't like your own singing voice at that time is that true Uh, yeah i don't uh, i'm not sure i even have a singing voice i'm kind of a talk singer you know i think i'm more of a guitar player that sings some than a singer that plays some guitar you developed this one-man band act didn't you well you know my songs the ones that I had success on, uh, for example, uh, Wildwood Weed, there's no singing in it. It's just talking. It's just a t- telling of a story. 
Wildwood flower grew wild on the farm And we never knowed what it was called Some said it's a flower and some said it's a weed I didn't give it much thought One day I was out there talking to my brother And I reached down for a weed to chew on Things got fuzzy and things got blurry And then everything was gone Didn't know what happened but I knew it beat the hell out of sniffing burlap I come to and my brother was there and he said, what's wrong with your eyes? I said, I don't know. I was chewing on the weed. He said, well, let me give it a try. I spent the rest of that day and most of that night trying to find my brother Bill. Caught up with him about six o'clock the next morning, naked, singing on the windmill. How did you develop this storytelling style? Well, that's because I'm not a singer. I try to write a song that I can talk sing, you might say. I don't have a singer's voice. I, I hear you say that, but how'd you come up with the idea that this might sell? I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of got away with it a few times. I, I managed to do it on the Wildwood Weed and Swamp Witch and My Girl Bill. The verses are talking and the choruses are sung. Right. So did you try it out on stage and audiences like this sort of approach and you thought, okay, well, we could go in and record? Yeah, I tried to get my songs up and moving. As soon as I, I get one written, I try to figure out a way to, to present it on stage. And where do you take your inspiration from? I mean, for instance, Swamp Witch, what are you talking about there? Well, when I was a little boy, there was a, a shack across the street from my house. And there was a lady in, in, in the shack that lived there in that little chair. It's a one room, little shanty kind of thing. And her name was Hattie. And she was a real sweet lady. And when I was a little boy, I would go visit with her. And so I guess I must've got my Hattie shack from that person. Way up the road from Hattie's shack lies a sleepy little Okeechobee town. Talk a swamp witch, you had it lock you in when the sun go down. Rumors of what she done, rumors of what she do. Kept folks off a track of Hattie Shack in the back of the black bayou. Did you always take inspiration from what you saw around you? I guess I did. I, I never wrote a, a lot. I kind of wrote for what I needed. I was more interested just in the entertainment value of, of what I was doing. And if I could do a creepy old song about a, a swamp witch that lived back in the swamp, and I was kind of proud of that because it, it had its own feeling. It had, it, that whole thing was kind of scary. I thought it was kind of cool. You set out to be an entertainer from a very early age, didn't you? Yeah. When I was about, uh, I guess, 16 or 17 years old, one day I put my guitar, my truck, and I drove out to a Holiday Inn and auditioned and started that night playing my music for a living. So I just went went on from there. And i got to tell you who inspired me a lot, okay? There was a kind of an uptown nice eatery in, in the town I was in, and, and they could afford these piano bar comics. But I liked the way that they were able to entertain. They knew how to manipulate, how to tell a story, how to play piano. And so it was a, very helpful to me because the fellow that had that restaurant had several of those people come in. So I really got to see the, the good picture of how these different acts were handling audiences. And it was terrific to see that and to to try and figure out where, I, where am I in all this. You figured it out, all right, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> in 1973, you had uh, undoubtedly your biggest hit with uh, Spiders and Snakes, and that was a song yeah. that you wrote together with David Bellamy from the Bellamy Brothers. How did that come about? Well, I heard the song. It, it had a chorus that went like, uh, I don't like spiders and snakes, and that ain't what it takes to love me. Come on, love me. Then he'd repeat it. I don't like spiders and snakes, and that ain't what it takes to love me. Come on, love me. But he would sing that, of course. And so I, I, I felt like it needed to conclude each time around. So I would say, I don't like spiders and snakes, it's what it takes to love me. You fool, you fool. I don't like spiders and snakes, it's what it takes to love me. Like I want to be loved by you. Because I wanted the girl to say, I may not agree with you, but I'm interested. That was fun to do. I remember when Mary Lou said, you want to walk me home from school? Well, I said, yes, I do. 
obviously happy with you changing the words around for him? Well, I hope so. The thing sold, I think it sold a couple of million records. I'm going to guess that he was happy. Because it came in at number three on the charts, it went gold, and it really did help make you a household name, didn't it? Were you surprised by its success? Yeah, oh yeah. I think I've been surprised by every success I've ever had. You know, you work on it and you hope for the best, right? I look back on what I did and I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way things went and I, I you know I did 26 uh, Johnny Carson shows and of course over the years I had a show called Those Amazing Animals and over a period of time I was the writing supervisor for the New Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour and that was a lot of fun too. So that was around 1975 and you your last hits at that point that you had on the charts were your bulldog drinks champagne and I got stoned and I missed it. Tell me about this. Yeah. I was sitting in my basement. I just had myself a taste of something that I love to taste because it seems to make my day. When my friend calls on the phone and he says, I'm glad I caught you home. There's a fool down on the corner giving hundred dollar bills away. Said time is a wasting, so get your motor racing. But I had another taste, and I headed for the door. And I tried to find my hat, and I had a little more. And I had another taste, and then I got stoned and I missed it. I got stoned and I missed it. I got stoned and it rolled right by. You get your run, right? You do your deal and you go, oh, this one hit, that one hit, that one hit, and that one hit. Well, but you know, it doesn't matter if you're Elvis or the Beatles. Sooner or later, everything's not going to be a hit. It's just a matter of time. And that's what happened to me. I had a nice little string, several of them, and that was about all I had. But thank goodness I had enough to get out and around and to do the TV shows, Mike Douglas and Carson and Dinah and all those kinds of things, and kind of keep my whole deal yeah, up and moving. Which of the songs did you like best? Well, I thought the story about the Swamp Witch was pretty a pretty good story. I was proud of my rewrite on Spiders and Stakes. What about My Girl Bill? What were you writing about there? Oh, my. I think My Girl Bill is kind of an exercise in deception Go uh, or, or a misplaced comma. My Girl Bill or My Girl Bill. <laughs> One of those things. And that thing was a hit. Can you that was a top ten song? I know. You know nobody what? was any more surprised than me. Where had you meant to place the comma? Well, let's see. If you say my girl Bill, it almost sounds like Bill is your girl. Right. But if you say she's my girl, Bill, then everybody gets it. What had you intended in that song? What was it about? I don't know what it was about. I think it was about uh, me and Bill having the same girl. And so the problem was. When I said, my girl, Bill, she, uh, I can't say a way to say enough about the way I feel about my girl, my girl, Bill. I was singing about my girl, Bill. <laughs> so there's a comma in there somewhere. Bill walked me to my door last night. And he said, before I go, 
There's something about our love affair That I have a right to know I said, let's not stand out here like this What would the neighbors think? Why don't we just step inside And I'll fix us both a drink Deception, you know. Yeah, I, I hear you, Jim Stafford. When you were doing all those variety shows and, and hosting your own shows, that's when you met singer Bobby Gentry and married her, didn't you? Ah, uh, yeah. She's somewhere and doesn't want to talk to the world at all anymore. What was Absolutely. she like then? Bobby Gentry, in my opinion is a really good example of somebody who understood what a show was. She understood uh, how that show was supposed to work. She understood how to do a deal and what kind of a show it was and who's going to be in the thing and what's the theme and all the stuff yeah. that it takes to put a show on. And she'd been doing it, even when I met her, she'd been putting those shows on in Las Vegas for a pretty good while. She seems to be so completely out of it now, not wanting to know about the entertainment business at all anymore. I think that she might have made some kind of decision that she had kind of had her run and she had enjoyed it probably 20 years in Las Vegas. I think she might have wanted to just kind of cool it. It was a third of June, another sleepy, dusty Delta day. I was out chopping cotton and my brother was baling hay And at dinner time we stopped and walked back to the house to eat And mama hollered at the back door, y'all remember to wipe your feet And then she said, I got some news this morning from Choctaw Ridge Today Billy Joe McAllister Jumped off the Tallahatchie Bridge She was a very talented lady, wasn't she? Yes, I think she was extremely talented and I think that she was comfortable in so many areas of performance in singing, in writing, in dancing in 1981, the very handsome Jim Stafford made his film debut, appearing in Clint Eastwood's Every Which Way You Can. He wrote some of the soundtrack and had his last chart single. Yeah, yippee I cow patty. Yeah, yeah, I did. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's about a lady named Patty who was a cowgirl. What can I say? We don't really have to <laughs> go into <laughs> it. Dissect the song too too much. You know? No, we'll just we'll just have a listen to it now, saying that you've mentioned it. From the Badlands came the killer. He lived by the knife and the gun. He'd cut you just for standing, shoot you if you tried to run. He was big as a tree, and he did as he pleased, and everything he did was bad. They said if you was to kill him. It only make him mad. From the good lands came the cowgirl. Patty was her name. She was hot on the trail of that killer on a moped she called Flame. Because the killer had killed her daddy just for spitting in the road. You only had to kill her daddy once to get that gal P.O.'d. Yippee-yay, cow Patty. Yippee-yay, cow patty She rode into town to find the man that killed her daddy Yippee-yay, cow patty Killer hit town at daybreak, ate the door off the local saloon He started to drink, you could tell he was thinking there'll be a showdown soon Patty hit town in a cloud of dust, old flame was buzzing like a saw. And the whole town got as quiet as a church when the killer stepped out for the draw. Forty shots rang out. 
Did you give up writing songs after that? I wound up in Branson and I had a theater there. So all of my attention went into my show. I was doing uh, sometimes two shows a day, sometimes like six days a week. We had a lot of going on there back then. It was fun. You've moved back to Florida now. You've closed that theatre. Do you miss those days? Uh, I'm okay. I don't even know how to, to think in terms of not performing. So I'm still working, but I'm also retired, so go figure. Have you yeah, taken up I, golf? No, but I'll tell you what I do. I do tennis almost every day. Jim Stafford, an absolute delight chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, dear. It's a pleasure talking. I enjoyed it. Don't go anywhere. Next up, we chat with New Zealand-born 80s pop star Sharon O'Neill. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. You liking what you're hearing? I really hope so. Now to our segment where you get to choose the guest. This week it's Sharon O'Neill, famous in Australia and New Zealand during the 80s and quite a favourite with the boys. Yeah, yeah, she was something of a heartthrob and today she's still a sweetie. Just ask Steve from Alstonville in New South Wales, who still gets into trouble with his wife today for remembering Sharon's birthday and not hers. Sharon O'Neill, welcome to A Breath of Fresh Air. Thank you. Good to be here. How's life with you? Above ground, Sandy. Well, that's going to be good for starters. (laughs) Very good, thank you. Let's wind it back to where it all began for you because you started performing in the late 60s in Nelson in New Zealand, right? Yeah, well, let's just say 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Started out just folk music, that sort of thing. It just developed from there. I just worked in a radio station. I think that's really what kicked me off. I was surrounded by music all day, which was great. And that just developed my songwriting, I think, more than anything. We're talking to you, Sharon, this week because one of your biggest fans wrote in to me to ask me if I could bring you onto the show. And he joins us on the line now. Sharon, meet Steve. Steve, meet Sharon. Well, hello, Sandy, and hello, Sharon. Hi, Stephen. Without making you blush, I know that you've been in love with Sharon forever and a day. Can I tell you how it all started? Okay, I'm listening. Back in in 87 when Foreign Affairs came out, I went to my friend Joe's house. He was playing Foreign Affairs on vinyl. And uh, I said, this sounds fantastic. Who is it? He said, Sharon O'Neill. I said, I've never heard of her. He said, we'll take the cassette home and have a listen to it. So I took it home and near wore the thing out. I took it to my friend place, Ian Steele, and he done the same thing, and we've been big fans ever since. That's lovely to hear. a slow developing thing. I finished school and I thought I would go to uni and maybe study English because I loved words so much. But by chance got a a job in a radio station and for me that was just like music me, we're joined at the hip. What inspired your songwriting in the first place? Just poetry. I was always writing poetry. I was always fiddling around with scraps of paper and writing little things that I thought or felt and it just was automatic to just put it to music. Tell us about the move here and what happened. Way back then, the big jump was to go to Australia. You had to go over there. They transferred my contract and it was all tied in with the release of a single, which I hadn't written, called How Do You Talk To Boys. I'm on a computer date The result of my request The perfect mate Hope it works out better than the one last week there's that same deafening silence He waits for me to speak I don't know where to begin I just stand there like a fool Wearing a grin Can't think of anything to say All my small talk has run out As we drive away How do you talk to boys? Get to let them home Every time I talk to boys 
Luckily enough, we got a tour opening for Boz Skaggs, which was great because we had just been playing little pubs and doing the drives as you do. And then all of a sudden we were able to play Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne and even Perth. So it was great. It really helped a lot. When they told you that you were moving, was that challenging for you? I can imagine sort of stepping across the the big ditch must have felt a bit daunting. It was at first. The actual move to live here was daunting. But I had come over with my Kiwi band before and we stayed in a hotel in King's Cross and we went out and we did our little gigs and the stuff that people really don't do that much of at the moment, you know, in this day and age. But in those days, we would drive long distances and we'd work about five days a week at different pubs. And that was a real good grounding. But it's it's a hop, you know. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. And of course, when, when that first single did come out and subsequently you were a massive hit, the biggest single and the biggest success you've had to date came from the next album, didn't it? That was the album Foreign Affairs in 1983, which threw that, that terrific track Maxine. Yeah, that was quite a surprise for me because I made the record in LA and we finished the album and the record company said, well, we don't hear a single. So I went and I said, okay, so they wanted something up-tempo and they wanted something else to tag on it. So I wrote Losing You and they thought, okay, fine. And that became the first single. it up with Maxine and that was the biggest single which had been there all along but they hadn't heard it. Yeah what do you think it was about that track that really captured everybody's hearts? I think maybe the the content of the lyrics was intriguing because it was like written about a real person in in my eyes and I just think it's a cruisy little musical song. I love the sax hook on the beginning and the solo just just little elements like that but it was never a big hit which is ironic, but it's the one that everybody knows me for. I love playing it. I love the fact that people know it, but it was never um, one of those gung-ho hits. I didn't know that.
hit the top 10. It was so well known right around the world. It was one of those things I was very pleased that it actually got a life. Who were you writing about? I didn't know her personally, but the time when I was with my band from New Zealand and we were based in King's Cross, I would see this girl outside what used to be and she would always be standing there working. And I just, coming from New Zealand, I hadn't really seen much about nightlife but you know King's Cross cures that very quickly and I just really felt for her and her lifestyle it just flowed out from there really. Uh, Oh and for anybody listening who doesn't know what we're talking about in terms of King's Cross it's like the red light district of Amsterdam for example and and I think every city has one of those. Yeah exactly and uh, very colourful back in the day. And of course then as a result of that album and, and that single in particular you won Australia's highest awards. You won the Top Female Vocalist Award in in three consecutive years, 78, 79 and 80. You won the Countdown Rock Awards and I think I've said on this show a few times that Countdown was our national music program that millions of of kids and, and not so young people would gather around every Sunday night to watch. You won that three times between 1980 and 85 and uh, Sounds Pop Pole in 83 and 84. Sharon O'Neill, you were just flying high in those days. You couldn't put a foot wrong. They were great times. I loved it, that whole era, and um, I still love that era, I've got to say. How would you describe that time? Amazing. It's just something about that, that whole era that was just so everybody related to everybody and everyone was a buddy. Stephen, you had a couple of questions up your sleeve that you wanted to ask Sharon. Would you like to? Got about a thousand here, but I'll just pick something out. Oh, fire away with a couple, Stephen. What was your favourite song that you sang? That, that's a tricky one because there's just so many songs that I really do enjoy playing. I actually really like Love Can Be Cruel. I don't do it live, but there's just something about singing it and the chord progression that I've always loved. It's close to your heart, huh? Yeah, it is. It is. From that North Island train And I turned around empty again Love can be cruel And easy to meet We've been chained And now we've become free To love again I was going to say who's your favourite singer, but I think there might be Linda Ronstadt. Is that correct? Uh, get out of my head. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. She's just wonderful. Her voice is just incredible. She's got the works going on with her voice. All that fascinates me, the way she can just place her voice in so many different ways with such strength. Are you still writing songs today? Yes, I am. I know in 2018 you did a duet with Ben Ransom. That was a song yeah. that you co-wrote for for Dragon. You've done a lot of writing for other people, not only for yourself over the years, haven't you? Yeah, well, particularly with Dragon. With Alan and I wrote quite a few songs for them. Alan was on tour, I think, with Robert Palmer. And he was in Singapore and he went to a record store and he heard a record play. And he thought to himself, they're my horn parts. And it was um, Physical Favours, which we wrote together, done in Cantonese, <gasps> which is hilarious. You actually contributed to Robert Palmer's music too, didn't you? We did write with Robert, yeah. He and Alan were besties, really. And we spent a lot of time over at Robert's in Switzerland, just hanging out, writing, a, a genius composer, singer, really. Stephen, you got more? Um, okay. Um, Sharon, I'll let you go. Stephen, have you got something you'd like to finish up with? Um, a lot of your songs seem to have a story to them. Are any of them stories from from real life, like Kids in Our Town and Radio Lover and songs like that? Uh, yeah, Kids in Our Town, definitely. A lot of, the, you know, a lot of emotions occur as you're just going through your day-to-day life and sometimes they're strong enough to write about. Yep. I like it to mean something. Stephen, last opportunity. <laughs> in 87, I was on my honeymoon and went to one of your concerts. He just couldn't hear of anybody else. It was all Sharon O'Neill for you, Stephen, wasn't it? It's been like that. Right. You might, your wife must have been very jealous. She could be. <laughs> Still? <laughs> <laughs> but 
She puts up with it. <laughs> good honor. That's that's a nice thing. She's a good one then. She's a keeper. She doesn't like when I forget her birthday, but I remember yours. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so how do you feel, Stephen, having had the opportunity to chat with Sharon? Awesome. Very good. I can tick that off my bucket list now. Oh, that's great. Yeah, really. Well, nice. I enjoyed it, Stephen. Thanks for being a fan. Thanks for having me. Sharon O'Neill, fabulous to meet you. All the very best. Thanks so much, Sandy. Thanks, Stephen. Bye now. Bye. <laughs> Look out for a new EP from Sharon and her partner, Alan, who used to be with the band Dragon. And do let me know if you'd like to hear someone on this segment too. Send me a message on the website, abreathoffreshair.com.au. That's abreathoffreshair.com.au. Don't be shy. Request anyone you'd like to hear from. Thanks again for your company today. I've really enjoyed having you with me. Now it's time for me to head back to that comfy couch and open fire. I'll look forward to seeing you back again same time next week. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.